0: Thanks, Gareth. Um, Do grab a Bible. We're going to be flicking through lots of different bits. So grab one if you think you're really fast at flicking through the Bible. Otherwise, don't panic. Hopefully the the verses are going to be on the screen. Um, As we've already said this evening, we uh, have been working our way through uh, the book of Judges on Sunday evenings. It's been a, 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 I think it's been a fascinating book uh, full of interesting characters, full of unbelievable uh, heroes, sometimes comical rescue scenarios. Uh, but it's also a book that has raised a load of questions. Uh, the question of idolatry uh, being one, what are idols? Uh, do we still have them? We've just mentioned that in some books to, to help us with that question. Uh, but I want us just to pause this evening in our in our series, working through the book, uh, to think about a different question. Uh, it's a question that, that you might have been wondering yourself as we've gone through Judges. It's a question that I'm fairly sure friends or colleagues would ask you if they knew that this is what you've been getting up to on your Sunday evenings. Uh, the question is, why on earth is there so much violence in the Bible? Why does, why does God seem so intent on wiping out people and nations that seem to get in his way? Why is God so violent? or maybe it's maybe it's less of a question in your mind and more of a statement uh, maybe like the famous atheist richard dawkins uh, you've read bits of the bible bits like judges and you've concluded that quote the god of the old testament is jealous and proud of it a petty unjust unforgiving control freak a vindictive bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser a misogynistic homophobic Racist, genocidal, malevolent bully. Doesn't hold back, does he? But but whether you're whether you're a convicted atheist like Dawkins or just a slightly confused Christian, there's no getting around the fact that this is a big question, isn't it? It's a difficult question. It's difficult because when we when we read bits of the Bible like judges, when when we see God wiping out tens of thousands of people or or the Israelites cutting off the fingers and toes of enemy kings. It can make us feel a bit uncomfortable. And it's not, it's not actually just judges, is it? As you, you go through the Old Testament, you read about uh, these stories. The stories that, that, that I'm telling my children. Stories like the flood in the days of Noah. A complete destruction. Or the destruction of cities like Sodom and Gomorrah in the days of Abraham. Or the devastating plagues in Egypt in the days of Moses. We read those things and we stop and think about them and realise they're they're not just nice Sunday school stories. They're real events. We can struggle to make sense of them. So this evening I want us just to stop and spend a little bit of time thinking about them. I'm only clearly going to be able to give a very short answer to a very big question Uh, and so please do afterwards or or, or later in this week come back to me with any questions that you want to ask about these things but my hope tonight is that we're going to kind of step back a little bit from judges and and begin to get a bit of a framework for thinking about these things in general uh, how we see them across uh, the whole bible my hope is that'll be helpful for us as we jump back into Judges next week, but also as we perhaps answer questions that others might ask on these things. Like I say, we're going to look at a number of different passages this evening. Uh, Don't worry about trying to keep up and flick through them. Hopefully they'll be up on the screen for us, so you don't need to look them up. Uh, And as we go through, I just want to notice four common themes this evening, four big themes uh, that start to help us with this question. Uh, The first theme is that God... Is a holy judge. Uh, We can begin to uh, see that when we look at the way that God's character is described during these events in the Old Testament. Uh, So in Exodus chapter 34, after the plagues, we read that God is is the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Uh, In Deuteronomy chapter 32, before the war with the Canaanites, we're told that all of God's ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. In Genesis 18, before the destruction of Sodom, Abraham asks, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Bible's resounding answer to Abraham's question is yes. Yes. The Bible describes a patient, loving kind compassionate god and crucially a god who is just and so who will rightly judge all evil and wickedness in the world whether you're a, a christian or not this evening I, I think we all like the idea we're all on board with the idea of justice aren't we it's why we have a law system we agree that people should be held responsible for the things they do. The evil and injustice and wrongdoing, it shouldn't just be ignored. We shouldn't turn a blind eye to it. We can generally all agree on that, and and the same is true for God. In fact, the Bible makes it really clear that, that God is far more concerned with evil and injustice than we are. If he wasn't, if he... If he was a God who just just ignored evil, if he didn't care about justice, well then he wouldn't be much of a God, would he? Certainly not a God that we would want to worship. So God is a God of justice who has promised to deal with the evil and sin in the world. And that is what we see going on in the Bible. Before the flood, we read in Genesis 6, That the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. That every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all of the time. Before the plagues in Egypt, we read how Pharaoh had oppressed the Israelites to the point of murdering their children. And we've seen in Judges, haven't we? The Canaanites were people marked by incest. Adultery, temple sex, bestiality, child sacrifice, and violence. And so in each of these cases, God is acting in judgment against people who have chosen to reject him and so become completely morally corrupt. Fast forward to the New Testament and we discover that Jesus also talks about God's judgment against wickedness and sin. In Matthew 10, he says to his disciples, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Or in Mark 9, he says, Look, If your eye causes you to sin, then you should pluck it out. It's better to pluck out your eye than, and to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to be thrown into hell, where the fire does not go out. Jesus is crystal clear when he talks about judgment and hell. And so this isn't just some sort of hobby horse for a mean Old Testament God, and then we get to a nice and friendly Jesus. No, it is the message of the whole Bible. And in fact, Jesus doesn't just talk about judgment. No, he is the one who will come and enact it. Romans chapter 2, verse 16, Paul writes, this will take place on the day when... God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. And so that's the first thing that we've got to see this evening. God is a holy and just God. Which means throughout history, he has rightly judged humanity's sin. And so straight away for us this evening, the events that we read in Books like Judges, well, they are a sobering reminder for us, aren't they? They're a sobering reminder that God will not let sin go unpunished. There is a day set on which all people will stand before him and give an account for how they've lived. And on that day, well, there'll be no debate. There will be no discussion. Only submission. Submission. To the holy and righteous judge of all the earth? That is the first crucial thing we need to see as we come to this question. God is a holy judge, He will judge sin. The second thing we need to see is that God is patient with us. We can see that in the timing of each of these events. Each time God decides to act in judgment, He delays that judgment to give people time. To change their minds, he gives them time to repent. It took Noah years to build the ark, years in which people could have turned back to the Lord. The plagues in Egypt were were warning signs. God could have wiped them out like that, but instead he gives them opportunities to listen to Moses. He gives them time. And the people in the land of Canaan, they had, as we're going to see a bit later on, they'd already heard about the God of Israel, the the one true God who had brought his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea. They were given time to turn and acknowledge him as the true God. And again, we find the same thing when we come to the New Testament. In 2 Peter chapter 3, we read this, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, that's his promise of judgment, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God has promised to judge the world once and for all. But he has delayed that judgment so that people have time. Time to turn back to him, time to believe in him and trust him. And so the reason that Jesus hasn't come back yet, the reason he has not come to judge the world and remove sin and wickedness once and for all, is that he is patiently waiting. He is allowing time for sinful people to turn back to him in repentance and faith. Which means if you're here this evening and you haven't done that, if you are still rejecting God, if you're living in rebellion against him, then today is the day to turn around. Not tomorrow. Not in a few weeks or a few years' time. Today. Today is the day to put your trust in Jesus. And so receive forgiveness and life in his name. Don't put it off. Don't don't wait until life is more manageable. Don't don't think that you want to do loads of things that you've got planned before you turn to Jesus. No, God is being patient with you. But as Peter goes on to say in his letter, the day of the Lord will come. It'll come like a thief in the night. God's patience will come to an end. Jesus will return to judge and then it will be too late. And if you are a Christian here this evening, if you are trusting in Jesus, well, then God's patience should, it should be a motivation for us, shouldn't it? A, a motivation for mission. That knowing that God has delayed his judgment so that more people might hear and believe the gospel should move us to, to share that gospel with a greater sense of urgency. People need to hear about Jesus today. Again, not when we've got our our lives back in order, but but today. Which leads us to the third thing we need to see. Not only does God give people time to change their mind, he also provides witnesses so that they can hear about him. Noah was God's witness to the people around him, telling them exactly what the Lord had promised about judgment. Abraham and Lot were God's witnesses to Sodom. Moses and Aaron were repeatedly warned pharaoh of what would happen if they did not listen to the lord the nation of israel was meant to live as god's witnesses to the people in the land of canaan and again that is exactly how the bible describes christians 2 corinthians chapter 5 says this we that's christians are therefore christ's ambassadors as though god were making his appeal through us we implore you on christ's behalf Be reconciled to God. Paul says we are Christ's ambassadors, his his representatives, his witnesses, the people who bring his good news, his gospel to the world. We know, don't we, that that can look uh, different in all sorts of ways. You, You might be an ambassador for Christ in your school, at the university in the workplace, in your home to your husband or your wife or your children or your grandchildren, at the sports club, at the school gate. It doesn't really matter where it is. The point is wherever you go, whatever you do, you represent Jesus. You are his ambassador. God has chosen to show himself to an unbelieving world through people like you and me, just as he did through these people in the Old Testament. And it's important we see that, that we are ambassadors individually but also collectively. Listen to how Christians are described in one Peter chapter two. Peter says, "You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Why that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light." You see the corporate language that Peter uses? He says it's the church. It's us together, collectively, corporately, that declare the praises of God to the watching world. As one writer puts it, it's as the church that we are called to display what life is like under the good rule of God. Every aspect of how we live and what we say is to serve God in displaying his goodness to the people around us. How do we do that? How does the church declare God's praises through its life together? Well, there's loads of ways that the New Testament instructs us to live as the church, as God's people. But, but at the core of them all is, well, it's Jesus' command, isn't it? To love one another. Uh, he says in John 13, a new command I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this... All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, one of the ways that we can live as ambassadors for Christ, one of the ways that a King's Church declares the glory of God to the watching world is in the way that we love each other. And I notice that Jesus isn't talking about just a kind of warm, fuzzy, sentimental kind of love know, he says the love that displays the gospel is the love, the same sort of love that he has shown us. The same sacrificial, self-giving love that he has shown to us. Love each other, each other, says Jesus, as I have loved you. And it's Jesus' sacrificial love for us that brings us to the last crucial thing that we've got to see this evening. We've seen that God is a, a holy judge uh, who will hold people accountable for the way they've lived. We've seen that he gives us time to repent, to turn back to him in faith. And that he sends witnesses to, to make him known. And finally we need to see that he makes a way for people to be rescued. It's really easy, isn't it, to think of the Old Testament as being all about judgment. All about God's judgment, but... But the truth is, as you read through it, you see that mixed in with God's judgment is story after story after story of his rescue. We've seen that even in the book of Judges, haven't we? That cycle, that time and time again, God rescues rebellious Israel from the consequences of their sin. The Old Testament is full of God's rescue. And wonderfully, it's not just Israel who are on the receiving end of it. In the book of Joshua, the one before Judges, we meet a woman called Rahab. Rahab is a Canaanite woman. She belongs to the idol-worshipping nation who are the enemies of God's people. And more than that, Rahab is a prostitute. She lives an immoral life. The complete opposite of the kind of purity and holiness that God requires. In other words, this this woman Rahab, this Pagan prostitute is the most unlikely of believers but in Joshua chapter 2 we find that even she trusts in the Lord and so is rescued from the armies of Israel and the fact that Rahab is saved shows us that God's rescue is for anyone his salvation is available to all wherever you're whoever you are wherever you're from whatever you've done If Rahab can become one of God's people, well then so can you. Rahab shows us that God's rescue is for anyone. And the events of books like Exodus show us how that rescue is achieved. You you might know the story, but, but after repeated warnings and plagues, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, stubbornly refuses to listen to God. He will not let the Israelites go. And so, eventually, the Lord's patience runs out. Moses tells Pharaoh that he's going to send one final plague. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. God will not let sin go unpunished. He will come in judgment. And so, on that night, street after street, town after town, home after home, would be filled with the sound of wailing. And grief that is all except for the homes and streets of the Israelites because in Exodus chapter 11 it goes on to say that the Lord would that he would make a distinction the Egyptians would face his judgment but the Israelites would be safe and again we read that and we might think oh here we go same old racist God showing favoritism to one group of people and wiping out the rest. But as you read Exodus, you find out that is not what is going on. The distinction has nothing to do with ethnicity or religious performance or moral behavior. The Israelites aren't saved simply because they are better people than the Egyptians. No, the distinction between Egypt and Israel comes down to just one thing the blood of the lamb. You see, God told the Israelites that they would be safe. His judgment would pass over them if they listened to and trusted him. If they took a perfect lamb, if they killed it and spread its blood on their doorposts, then they would be safe. They would be saved from God's judgment. And so every home experienced death that night. But in some homes a lamb died in the place of the firstborn child. In other words, it was through the sacrificial death of a lamb that God made a way for people to be saved. And it's this idea of of sacrifice and salvation that continues through to the New Testament. And so in John's Gospel, right at the start in chapter 1, we read, the next day John, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John's message and the message of the whole New Testament is that Jesus Christ is this true Passover Lamb. He is the one who came and lived a perfect, spotless life and died as a sacrifice in our place. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment that all people deserve so that God's judgment could pass over us. And so just as Israel simply had to trust in the blood of the Lamb to be saved from judgment, all we have to do is trust in the blood of Jesus to be saved from the judgment that we deserve. It's through Jesus and trusting in him that God has made a way for people to be saved. He has made a way for us to be rescued and so if we draw all that together if we if we bring those those four elements together they help us they begin to help us see how we can think about this question of judgment in the old testament we've seen haven't we that god is holy and just that means he must punish sin he can't ignore it but that doesn't mean he takes pleasure in judgment In fact, he he delays it and provides witnesses, all so that people might turn back to him. God wants that so much, his desire is so strong for people to be saved, that, that in the end, he's willing to provide the perfect sacrifice of his only son, the Lord Jesus, so that people could be saved, so that they could be forgiven. Jesus is the means by which God rescues people from judgment. And so whoever we are, whatever, whatever we've done, all we need to do is turn from our sin and trust in Jesus to be saved. But if we choose to ignore that, if we, if we reject God's free offer of forgiveness, then we are no different to the people in the Old Testament who rejected him. That we stand before him and will face his judgment—the judgment we deserve, the judgment we would have chosen. Like I say, this this evening we can only really scratch the surface of a big question, and there'll be plenty more questions. I'm sure that this is raised in your mind, let alone answered. But I hope that whatever you might think and feel about the judgment of God in the Old Testament, however. Uh, Friends or people around might talk about it. The big thing you can see is that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross shows us that we are not witnessing the actions of an evil, vindictive, bloodthirsty God. Instead, we see a holy and just God who takes evil and sin incredibly seriously. But also a God who is gracious and compassionate. A God who is slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. A God who is willing to take the punishment of our sin on himself and delay his judgment that people like you and me might turn to him and be saved. That is the God we find in Judges. That is the God we find throughout the Bible. Let's pray to him now. I'm going to pray using Paul's words in Ephesians 3. Paul prays this, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide And long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Father God, we thank you so much that your word is truth, that you reveal yourself to us in the pages of the Bible. And Father, we pray that as we come to Bits that we find difficult or hard to understand and accept. That you would help us. Father, please help us to see you as you truly are. Please help us to see the sheer size of the love of Christ for us. Father, would our eyes and our hearts be filled with the vision of the Lord Jesus at the cross. Because there we see who you truly are. Help us with that we pray this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing it again now as we close our time together. Songs that remind us of the holiness of God that we've thought about, but also the fact that God is a rescuing God who saves people just like you and me. So when the band are ready, let's stand together and sing.